is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Do you remember the little comment or little statement that I've made it a bunch, other people have made it, it goes like this. People are either in a storm, they're going in a storm, or they're coming out of a storm. Or maybe we could say it like this. People are in a crisis, or they're going into a crisis, or they're coming out of a crisis. Although as I thought about that, it's not exactly true. There are times when it seems like we're just in peaceful waters, and we're not in going or coming out, right? So that's not exactly true, but, but it is true that crises abound in, in our lives. I mean, you're going along and all of a sudden there's no toilet paper in the stores, right? And there's a crisis. Of course, I'm kidding. That's only a first world crisis. In our text today, Ahaz, I mean, King Isaiah is going to come and speak with King Ahaz. He's the third king, Uzziah, Jotham, and Ahaz. He's the first, a third king that, that Isaiah has to deal with. But uh, Ahaz is facing a, a crisis, and the prophet comes to speak to him about his crisis. So let's look at the, at the text. We're going to be in chapter 7 and 8. I'm not going to read every verse in 7 and 8, but I'm going to read most of them, okay? So let's set the context. This took place during the reign of Ahaz, son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah. Aram's king Rezin and Israel's king Pekah, son of Remaliah, went to fight against Jerusalem. But they were not able to conquer it. When it became known to the house of David uh, that Aram had occupied Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the hearts of his people trembled like trees of a forest shaking in the wind. Ahaz was the son and grandson of godly men. His father Jotham and his grandfather Uzziah were godly men, but that was not true of Ahaz. Ahaz would become uh, an ungodly man. He would not follow suit. Maybe he was a progressive Jew, thought he knew better than, uh, than his forefathers. He took the throne at the age of 20. One of the things he was known for was he burned one of his sons alive to the god Molech. And he would also go on the high places throughout Israel. And he himself would burn incense to the false gods there in Israel. His father and grandfather before him had tolerated the high places, meaning they hadn't by force removed them, but it says of Ahaz that he would actually go and offer incense in those places. I would imagine that the, the time we find Ahaz now, he's in his early 20s. I don't know what age exactly, but probably in his early 20s. And he's in crisis mode. He's in crisis mode because the two kings north of him, equally small uh, kingdoms, they had colluded together to come against him. The nations of Syria, or Aram, and the nation of, of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, Aram's led by Rezin, King Rezin. Israel is re- led by King Pekah. And Ahaz and the people of Judah, they're terrified by this. In fact, in the text we just read, they're, they're shaking like the leaves uh, on a tree. It just so happens that what we see next is that God is going to send Ahaz to tell him how to deal with this crisis. In fact, God's going to send Isaiah right to meet him, and he's going to begin to tell him how to deal with this crisis. It's amazing, isn't it, that God would have mercy on such a wicked man who would do things like burn his son alive to a false god. But I don't think it's for Ahaz's sake. I really think it's for the people of Judah. But if you step back just one moment and remember all the things that we've already said that Isaiah says to the people of Judah, they themselves are not better than their king, not much better than their king. But at least on their behalf, you know, God is not willing to give up on them yet. And so he's going to tell Ahaz Ahaz how to deal with this this crisis. Now it is in that that I, I want to find what he says to Ahaz, what Isaiah says to Ahaz in these two chapters. And by the way, 7 through 12 are really dealing with the same thing as we'll see where they're dealing with this northern threat uh, of both of, of Aram and Israel and then a greater threat of Assyria. 
7 through 12 are going to deal with that, but I want to take 7 and 8, and I want, to, I want to show you through the words of Isaiah how he is encouraging Ahaz to deal with this crisis. And by extension, I want to suggest that this is how you and I should deal with a crisis, because crises are going to come to us. I was thinking this week that if I was preaching this to our to the Ukraine church, right? If I was preaching it to them, boy, the application would be so, so visible, wouldn't it? I mean, here, these, these kingdoms are amassing to the north of, of Judah, and they're ready to invade. That's what's happening in Ukraine now as Russia masses troops on its border. And by the way, a little tangent, well, we should be praying for that. We should be praying for that because, I mean, we could be on the verge of a third world war. So we should definitely be praying for that. But that might not be our crisis, but we face crisis, don't we, all the time? The crisis of a, of a deadly illness, somebody we love passing away, we, like Dave Rowley, Mindy, uh, Rachel Riddick, all, all folks associated with our church in some way, losing their, their loved ones. Serious illness can be a crisis in our life, right? Melissa's in a crisis, having a crisis right now. She deals with the after effects of her stroke, loss of financial support, a broken relationship. Or how about a marriage that you feel like you can't fix? That's a crisis, right? Or how about a wayward child, a child that has, hey, embraced the ideology of our culture and says they're attracted to the same sex, or maybe they are, are going to live with the same sex, or maybe they're having gender confusion about who they are as a person. I mean, that's a crisis in a family. How about uh, an assault or a badgering neighbor who won't let up? Those are all crises. And then we could go on and on and on. How do I handle the crisis in my life? I had my brother call me this morning, and this, he didn't know what I was speaking on. He says, yep, I'm in a crisis. And I said, listen, you're going to want to listen to my message after this. Uh, after this. I don't know how helpful it will be to him. But anyway, you, you know, we all have crises. I want to hopefully give you, and I'll tell you, it's in your notes if you got it in the bulletin. I'm going to give you seven, I'm going to give you seven ways to address these. And, and they're not like seven different. There's they're seven concurrent things we do when we're faced with a, with a crisis. So let's dive in. Here's the first one. What, what should I do when I'm in, what is God telling Ahaz to do in his crisis? Here's the first one. Don't be afraid. Now, even before we look at the scripture in just a second, let me just acknowledge a couple of things. Fear is an, is an emotion, you know, and I cannot help emoting. I mean, my emotions come and I can't really stop my emotions. So I'm not talking about stopping the emotion of anger. I'm talking about how do I deal with the emotion of anger once it comes. When, when God says, don't be afraid, he's not saying don't have the emotion of fear because that emotion just comes on us and he recognizes that. What he's saying is don't let fear control you. Don't let fear overwhelm you. So let's look at the text, verse 3. The Lord said to Isaiah, Go out with your son, Sher Hashub, and meet Ahaz at the end of the conduit of the upper pool by the road of the launderer's field. Say to him, Calm down and be quiet. Don't be afraid or cowardly because of these two smoldering sticks, the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram, and the son of Remaliah, who is Pekah, by the way. For Aram, along with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah, has plowed harm against you. They say, let's go up against Judah, terrorize it, and conquer it for ourselves. And then we can install Tabeel, Tabeel's son, as king in it. Tabeel, the word Tabeel means uh, good for nothing. Could actually be his name, but I kind of doubt it. It's probably just an idiom for, let's just go and install the son of good for nothing, you know, in, in there as, as king. Now, Ahaz is out inspecting the aqueducts there within the city. Now, if you're about to be sieged by a, an attacking army, your water supply has to be within your walls or you're going to run out of water. And so he's inspecting the water ducts, the aqueducts there within the city to make sure that they're going to supply the water that they need. And so God sends him out there with his son, whose name translated means a remnant will return. He sends him to a very specific GPS location, right? Go out by the launderer's field, by the aqueduct, and there you're going to find the king. And this is what I want you to say to him, calm down, be quiet, don't be afraid or cowardly. Folks, listen, I want to tell you this. When you're in a crisis, you need to do that very same thing. You need to calm down. You need to be quiet. You need to take a deep breath, and you need to not let fear overtake you. 
Now, I'm going to acknowledge something else here. It takes a lot of spirit power to do that. It takes the Holy Spirit. I cannot, to, to quote the song, I cannot do that. I cannot do that apart from the work of the Spirit. But by the Spirit's grace, you and I, when, we're, when fear rises up because we're in a crisis, we can take a deep breath and we cannot let that fear overtake us. So number one, don't let fear overtake you. Don't be afraid. Number two, Remember that God is the supreme sovereign. God, through Isaiah, just let Ahaz know that he knows what's going on. So one of the things I want you to remember in your crisis is God knows what's going on because God sits in his throne high and lifted up. And, and he knows all things. And he knows about the plot against Ahaz. He knows about their desire to overtake Judah and install their puppet king. He definitely knows all that. Last week, we saw where God was the supreme sovereign. He's king, and he's the supreme king because his robe filled the whole temple. He was the supreme king above all kings. To be sovereign meant that God has the right to rule and the authority to rule. And he exercises that right whenever he desires. Here's what Psalm 115 verse 3 says, Our God is in heaven and he does whatever he pleases. I love that verse. Our God is in heaven and he does whatever he pleases. God is, God is absolutely, has the right to do whatever he wants. Now, God being sovereign, being king, in my estimation anyway, does not mean that he controls or micromanages all things. I don't think he does. But he does have the right as sovereign king to inter interject, interfere, bring about his will at any moment that he so desires. So look at verse 7. This is what the Lord God says. It will not happen. It will not occur. In other words, what, what Rezin and what Pika are planning, it will not happen. It will not occur. The chief city of Aram is Damascus, and the chief of Damascus is Rezin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The chief city of Ephraim is Samaria, and the chief of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you do not stand firm in your faith, then you will not stand at all. That last line is directed towards Ahaz, stand firm in your faith. But the previous couple of verses are basically God in his sovereignty, his right to rule, he, he, the one who sits in heaven saying, whatever I want happens, he's saying, it's not going to happen. I'm not going to let this happen. In fact, in 65 years from this point, Ephraim, northern, Ephraim is another way of saying Israel, the northern 10 tribes of Israel, they will not even exist as a people. Because Assyria is going to overtake them. We'll see that in a minute. Assyria is above Syria. And Assyria is going to come down, overtake them. They're going to defeat them within 11 years. Within just a couple of years, both Rezin and Pekah will both be dead. Do you hear me? Rezin and Pekah will both be dead within a few years. And within, I think it's 11 years, uh, Ephraim or Israel will fall. Within 60-some years, they won't even be a people anymore because Assyria on their first attack is going to leave them, but then they're going to come down. They're going to bring all these people from all these different places. They're going to add them to the people of, of, of Israel. And guess what's going to emerge from that group of people? The Samaritans, right? That, that they're going to just interbreed with the, and I don't mean that necessarily in a bad way, but they're going to interbreed with the, the Israelites so that the Israelite people as an identity will be lost. And they'll take on a new identity called the, the Samaritans. And that's what Isaiah uh, prophesies here. Within that time frame, God says, Israel will be gone. Now, and I don't mean by pointing you to the lordship of God that I'm implying, listen to me carefully, I am not implying, implying that God in his sovereignty is going to dissipate every one of your crises so that you don't have any pain. I'm not, I'm not saying that. That's simply not true. Simply not true. But what I do want to point you to is the fact that God is seated on his throne, high and lifted up. I mean, he is the supreme sovereign. He rules. He has made promises that he will keep. And he can accomplish whatever he wants. And what that means is, listen, we've already seen this. Your crisis is no surprise to God. So, so listen, when the, like my brother, crisis, right? But that, that crisis is not a surprise to him. I mean, to God. God knows it. What crisis are you in? Seriously, ask yourself, what, what, hey, if this is for me and I'm in a crisis right now, what crisis am I in? 
Here's what I want you to know. God knows very well all about your crisis. God knows very well about everything that's going on in your life. And, and here's what I want you to also see, that if God were willing, God could say, boom, and your crisis is gone, right? I'm not saying God's going to do that, but I am saying that if God wanted to, God could. Again, I'm trying to inspire confidence in you to trust in the Lord, not be afraid, to not be afraid, and remember that he's the sovereign, the supreme sovereign. Number three, now, this, is, this one is going to kind of neat, I think. And, and so hang on, to your, hang on to your seats and listen carefully. Hold on to God's sign. Here's my third thing for you. In your crisis, remember, I'm, I'm, I'm taking Ahaz's, what God's giving Ahaz, and I'm, I'm applying it to us, how to deal with crisis. And here's my third one. Hold on to God's sign. So look at verse 10. And I think you're going to find some of these verses really familiar. Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, ask for a sign from the Lord your God. It can be as deep as the grave, as deep as Sheol, or as high as heaven. But Ahaz replied, I will not ask. I will not test the Lord. Isaiah said, listen, house of David, is it not enough for you to try the patience of men? In other words, is it not enough for you to try my patience? Will you also try the patience of my God? Verse 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel. And by the time he learns to reject what is bad and choose what is good, he will be eating curds and honey. For before the boy knows to reject what is bad and choose what is good, the land of the two kings you dread will be abandoned. The Lord will bring you to your people. Bring, excuse me, the Lord will bring on you, your people, and your father's house such a time as never been seen in Ephraim separated, excuse me, since Ephraim separated from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. So God has sent Isaiah out to Ahaz, and he just told him, listen, don't be afraid. These two smoldering wicks, they're going to be gone in, in no time at all. And then God says to Ahaz something that don't you wish God would say to you. He says, ask for a sign that what I'm saying is true. I mean, it can be as high as heaven, or it can be as low as the grave. I think what that means is he could have asked for Uzziah to come back. I think. I mean, I don't know. But that, that, hey, I want as a sign for you to raise my granddaddy back from the grave. But instead, whatever, however, however extensive those signs were, God basically said, you ask whatever you want. As high as heaven, as low as the grave, and I'll do it for you to prove that what I'm telling you is true. And here's what this, this guy says. And I mean, he's so pompous. He says, I will not test the Lord. I will not ask of my God anything. Beloved, listen, it's not to test God to obey the Lord. Did you hear that? It's not to test God to obey the Lord. So if God tells you, ask me for a sign, then it's not to, diso it's, it's not to test him. It's to test him to not do it. It's to test him to disobey him, which is really what irritates Isaiah in, uh, in all of this. And uh, so he says, I won't give you a sign. So Isaiah says, okay, I'm going to give you a sign. God's going to give you a sign. But listen, the sign isn't going to be like the sign that God was going to give uh, Ahaz. The sign that he was going to give Ahaz was a sign today to prove that tomorrow would take place. The sign that God does give Ahaz is to say this, when it comes to pass, this sign will tell you that you blew it. This sign will tell you that you didn't operate in faith. This sign will tell you that I was telling you the truth all along. And then the sign that he gives him is this, that the virgin will give birth, and before the child is old enough to know good and bad, the two kings that you dread will be abandoned. Now, the question is, since this is a sign for Ahaz in, in their house, that they, they blew it and they, they disbelieved, the question is, who is the virgin that, a, that Isaiah is alluding to. And what exactly did he mean? So this is, this is Jimmy. I'm going to speculate a little bit. Not, not, not very much, but I'm going to speculate a little bit. Whoever the virgin was, Ahaz knew who she was. Ahaz knew who she was. Follow me. Listen, this, this, forget Matthew. I haven't even gone to Matthew yet. So don't think Matthew yet. They're at the aqueduct. This is a real conversation. And he says, I'm going to give you a sign that you blew it. That will give you a sign that what I'm saying is true. 
I'm telling you, I don't think it's going to be a sign that says to Ahaz, this is how you come you can believe me, but rather it's going to be a sign that says, you disbelieved me and I'm proving to you that I was telling you the truth. He says, the virgin will give birth. I'm suggesting, believing, most folks would agree with me here, I think that Ahaz knew who the virgin was that he was referring to. So, Imagine, imagine this scenario, you're at the aqueduct and, and you're Isaiah, and, or somebody's Isaiah, and Isaiah says to Ahaz, the virgin, what if he points to one of the virgins in his entourage, and he says, the virgin will give birth, and before her child is able to discern, is it right and wrong? Yeah, right or wrong, those kings that you're afraid, they're going to be gone, they're going to be dead. In this case, the, vir- the virgin is not, God's not saying anything about the virgin miraculously having a baby. He's just saying, this virgin, who's not even married, is going to have a child. And before that child is even, even two years old, knowing right from wrong, those kings that you despise or that you are so afraid of, they will be gone. And that's exactly what happened. Within just three years, both of these kings will be dead. So, most everyone agrees that if that was all there was to it, that would have been the sign. There would have been a sign that, so, so when the kings are dead, they would have looked and said, oh, wow. Remember that woman that Isaiah pointed to? She has a little baby who's two years old. Wow, God was telling the truth. That was going to be the sign. And, and they would call that child Emmanuel. Not that his name would be Emmanuel, but that child would re- represent that God is with us, that God is with Judah, that God had been with us all along. So I'm suggesting, and I believe I'm right, I'm suggesting that the sign that Isaiah gives to Ahaz in that day is a sign, again, I've already said this, but it's, it's a sign not to prove that what God said is going to happen, is going to happen. It's a, pro, it's a sign that when it has happened, it would look back and it would prove to them God gave us a sign that he was with us all along and we just didn't listen. If that's all it was, that's where it would have ended, but that's not where it ends. So listen carefully. In that sign that Isaiah gave that day, God gave a sign to Ahaz, but he also gave a sign to us. He gave a sign to all of Israel. He gave a sign to all of mankind. And he chose this sign right here to do both. And they're not exactly the same thing, but it's the same sign. And, and so God gave a far-reaching sign that 700 years later would come to fruition. Now in the text, when he says, I'm gonna give, I'll give you a sign, the you there is plural. It's not singular. In other words, Isaiah is not saying... Y'all tracking with me, everybody? <laughs> Don't give up on me, right? So the, 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 the you there is plural. So when, when Isaiah says that day, God's going to give you a sign, it's not like give you Ahaz a sign. It's like give you plural. Now, who's the plural? The plural could have been everybody sitting there in the entourage. God's going to give all of you Ahaz and all of your entourage a sign. See that virgin right there? She's going to have a child. And when she has a child, that child will not even be two years old, and these kings will already be gone. Um, but the you could be plural in meaning that God wanted to, it to be a sign for us. I'm going I'm to take it that way. So we fast forward, you know, 700 years, and Matthew is writing his, his gospel. And this is what he says about that day. In chapter 1, verse 18, he says, The birth of Jesus the Messiah came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant with the Holy Spirit. So her husband, Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. But after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus. God saves, because he will save his people from their sins. Now, all this took place, now here it comes, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, and he's going to quote now 
This passage from Isaiah, See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. And when Joseph awoke, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her, but did not have sexual relationships with her until she gave birth to a son, and he named him Jesus. On that day, God gave a sign, not just to Ahaz, but he gave a far-reaching sign to us. And it's going to be a slightly different sign. In this particular case, it's not just that a virgin would end up having a child, and before it's two years old, the kings of that day would be dead. In this particular case, an, un, a, an unpregnant virgin is going to give birth and she's never going to have had any relationships with men to bring that about. That's what Matthew says. And, uh, and so I, I think that's, notice that Matthew doesn't quote any rest of the, any rest of the sign, right? That, that, Matthew says, is a sign for us, that Jesus would be born of a virgin miraculously, conceived by the power of God. And because of that, we would call him the Son of God, or God with us, excuse me. We would call him Emmanuel, God with us. Now, both boys, neither one of them were named Emmanuel. Jesus is not named Emmanuel. Jesus is named Jesus. He's called Emmanuel because he represents God with us. He's called in Isaiah chapter 9, the eternal father, the everlasting God, the, the prince of peace. Well, he's not, these, those are titles. Those are not necessarily names. And some of them even just represents the essence of who Jesus uh, is and, and was. In this case, both, both children, the child of the virgin in Isaiah's day, would represent Emmanuel with us, that God is with us. All right, that God was with Ahaz, that God was with Judah in those days. Jesus takes it to a new dimension because Jesus is with us. But I mean, God is with us, but now it's in a new dimension. God is with us literally as one of us. He's become one of us. So why do I say when you're in crisis, remember the sign? I believe that sign was meant for you and me, that God would become one of us, that God would be with us that God would save us. Jesus' name means God saves. So when you're in crisis, never forget the sign. Never forget that Jesus became one of us. Never forget that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, Jesus, that whoever believes in him would never perish. Remember the sign that Jesus said, I've come and I'm never going to leave you and I'm always going to be with you. I'm not going to forsake you. Don't forget the sign. Now, in verse 17, go back to your text and look at verse 17 with me. In verse 17, the Lord will, the Lord will bring on you, your people, and your father's house. Such a time has, has never been since Ephraim separated from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. Now, I'm not sure if verse 17 is directed towards Ahaz or whether it's directed towards Israel or really directed towards both of, of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. In verses 18 through 25, and I'm not going to read all of this, but in 18 through 25, God says, I'm going to whistle for the flies, and that's a reference to the Egyptians, and I'm going to, I'm going to whistle for the bees, and that's a reference to the Assyrians, and they're going to come and fill your land. And that's exactly what they do. The Assyrians from the north, the Egyptians from the south, they're going to come fight each other, and it's going to be right there in the land of Israel. In verse 20, it says, On that day, the Lord will use a razor hired from beyond the Euphrates River, the king of Assyria, to shave the hair on your heads and the hair on your legs and even your beards. Now, that's definitely directed towards Israel, the northern tribe, not Judah. And he's, God is basically using a metaphor, and he's basically saying that, that the king of Assyria is going to come, and he's going to mow down people like a razor mows down hair off legs and, and face and head. Here God's people will be destroyed is what Isaiah is saying. They're going to be, they're going to be cut off by, by the Assyrians. And then he says, and again, I'm kind of skipping through this last part of seven. He says, the places will become desolate. Thorns and briars will overtake the land. Look at verse 23. Places that once were filled with thousand vines worth a thousand pieces of silver will become thorns and briars. In other words, that northern, that northern country of Israel, those northern ten tribes, their land, which used to have vineyards that were worth a thousand pieces of silver, they're just briar lands now. In fact, if we were to continue reading, he would say it's almost too hard to even go in there with your hoe because the briars are so thick. That's how bad it is in there. And that brings us to chapter 8. We're still in the same theme. 
It's still talking about crisis, still talking about Ahaz, but it's a different, different setting. Chapter 8. Then the Lord said to me, Take a large piece of parchment, Isaiah, and write on it with an ordinary pen, Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Uh, I have appointed trustworthy witnesses, the priests Uriah and Zechariah, the son of Jeberechiah. And, and I was then intimate with the prophetess, Isaiah speaking. And she conceived and gave birth to a son, his second son. The Lord said to me, name him Maher Shalal Hashbaz. For before the boy knows how to call father or mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoils of Samaria will be carried off by the king of Assyria." Now, that name that he's naming his son, Maher Shalal Hashbas, means uh, bring on the plunder quickly. Bring on the, bring on the plunder rapidly. That's what, that's what that name means. Hurry up and plunder. And so God tells Isaiah, write on a large piece of parchment his name, and then tell Uriah and Zechariah what's about to happen. And what he says is he tells them, I'm going to have a son, and this is what I'm going to name him. Hurry up and, and bring on the plunder. Hurry up. That's what his name means. I'm going to have a son. I'm going to call him. Hurry up and bring on the plunder. And uh, before my son knows how to say mom or dad, he says, Assyria will have destroyed both Damascus, the capital of, of Aram, and Samaria, the capital of, uh, of the northern tribes. So this is, this is almost a similar picture to the one that God says, I'm going to give to you, Ahaz, as a reminder that what I'm saying is true. Some people have actually believed that in chapter 8, what I just read you would be the fulfillment of the, of the prophecy or the sign that God gave Ahaz. So for instance, I'm sitting here thinking, oh, Lord, this is probably not communicating. Hopefully you're tracking with me, right? But if the prophetess in this particular case is an unmarried virgin woman that Isaiah takes as his wife and has a child, I mean, it would, it would meet the same requirements of, of, the, of the sign that God just gave to Ahaz at the aqueduct. Everybody with me? So some people believe that this, this is actually the fulfillment of what was promised in, in chapter 7. I don't think so. I think this is just a, a reinforcement, a reinforcement of telling them, listen, before my second son, his wife is called the prophetess here, Isaiah's wife is called the prophetess, before my second son is able to say mommy or daddy, those kings will be destroyed. You know, I have, a, I have a granddaughter who's like one year and two months. She still can't say mom and dad. She can't, can she? A little bit. Doesn't sound like mom and dad to me. <laughs> so I guess you can interpret it that way. But anyway, so again, I, I want to remind you that both Resin and Pika will be gone within three years. So that's the point, right? Within a short amount of time, they'll be gone. And that's, that's what God's trying, trying to say to them. And, and here God's giving them another sign. And Uriah and Zechariah were told ahead of time so that when it came to pass, they would all say to all of Judah, look, this is what Isaiah said would happen. And this is what has happened. Then God speaks to Isaiah again, verse 6. Because these people rejected the slowly, slowly flowing water of Shiloh and rejoiced with Rezin and the son of Remaliah, Rezin the king of Aram, the son of Remaliah Pekah, the, son of, uh, the king of Israel, the Lord will certainly bring against them the mighty rushing waters of the Euphrates River, the king of Assyria in all his glory. And he will overflow its channels and spill over all its banks. It will pour into Judah, flood over it, sweep through it, reaching up to the neck, and its flooded banks will fill your entire land, Emmanuel. Using rivers as a metaphor, God says to Israel, this is to the northern kingdom and to the southern kingdom, but to the northern kingdom, to Rezin and Pekah, he basically says, the king of Assyria is going to come down, he's going to flood your land, and he's going to wash you all away. But as for Judah, he says, Assyria is going to come in and flood your land too, but only come up to your neck. He's not going to drown you. He's not going to remove you. That's, the, that's what God basically tells all of these kings. This is what is about to happen. And then he, then he reminds them, God is with us. Talking about verse 8. Up to Judah, it's going to come up to our neck. God is with us. He's not going to drown us. Verse 9. 
Band together, peoples, and be broken. Pay attention, all you distant lands. Prepare for war and be broken. Prepare for war and be broken. Devise a plan. It will fail. Make a prediction. It will not happen, for God is with us. Here's what God says to his hearers, namely Israel. He's saying this to them. Syria, Israel, prepare for war, but be prepared to be broken. He says it twice. Prepare for war. Be prepared to be broken. And then he says, you devise plans. They will not work. You got your predictions of coming over and taking over Judah. It will not happen, I'm telling you. We're talking about how to deal with crisis through what, how Isaiah tells the, the people of Judah, and specifically Ahaz, how to deal with this crisis. So let me refresh for just a second. Don't be afraid, he says to, to them. Don't be afraid. Number two, he says, remember God is sovereign king. Remember he is the supreme king. And this is the point being repeated here. They got plans, they will fail. They got predictions, they won't come to pass. God is the king. And when he says this is what's going to happen, this is what's going to happen. And then the third thing I told you was don't forget the sign. For them is don't forget the sign. God is with you. Don't forget it after it happens. God is with you. For us, it's still the same. Don't forget the sign. God is with you. He hasn't abandoned you. He's with us. How do we know? Because the virgin gave birth and God became one of us. Now let's go on to the fourth thing. How do we deal with crisis? How does he want them to deal with crisis? Number four, in crisis, choose to fear only God. You say, well, isn't that kind of like the first one? No, there's a nuanced difference here. It's not just don't be afraid. It's be afraid of God. Look at verse 11. For this is what the Lord said to me with great power. Again, Isaiah is speaking. To keep me from going the way of this people. Do not call everything a conspiracy that these people say is a conspiracy. They're all afraid. Everything's a conspiracy. Isaiah, don't do that. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be terrified. You are to regard only the Lord of armies as holy. Only he should be feared. Only he should be held in awe. Again, that's point one. Don't be afraid, but it's a different point here. You know, don't be afraid of their conspiracies. Don't be afraid of what other people are afraid of. And by the way, what is everybody afraid of? They're afraid of dying. They're afraid of being killed by the kings of Aram and the kings of Israel or the, even the king of Assyria. They're afraid of dying. He says, don't be afraid of what they're afraid. Instead, Fear only God. Regard him as holy. Hold him in awe. What does that mean practically? Here's what it means. It means in a crisis, listen, if you're in a crisis, stay faithful to God. Stay faithful to God. Uh, love him with all your heart. Continue to trust him. Obey his will. Do his commandments. Don't be terrified by dying, even in your crisis. Don't be afraid of that. Be afraid of, of dying without hope of resurrection. Be afraid of dying without the promise of eternal life to come. That's what you should be afraid of. Fear only God. And here's what that practically means. It means, to, it means to love him and follow him and obey him. That's what he's saying. Isaiah said, hey, you know, for this is what the Lord said to me with great power to keep me from going the way of this people. So, so I didn't fall in line with them. Fear only God. Number five, in times of crisis, don't stumble over what's happening to you. Look at verse 14. He will be a sanctuary. But for the two houses of Israel, he'll be a stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over and a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many will stumble over these. They will, fail. They will fall and be broken. They will be snared and captured. Bind up the testimony. Seal up the instruction among my disciples. In other words, let this be a written record for people, what I'm saying after the fact, so you'll know I'm telling you the truth. Verse 17, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will wait for him. He says, God is a refuge. God is a sanctuary for us in, in crisis. He says, but it's going to be a stumbling block to Judah and to Israel. And how is God a stumbling block? How is this a stumbling block? And here's how it's a stumbling block. Because it's different than what they expected. It's different than what they thought would happen in their lives. It's different that they had these certain ideas or expectations of what it meant to be the sons of God and, and who God was to them. And so when it didn't pan out the way they thought, they stumbled over that. Now, you may remember these verses are quoted often in the New Testament. Did you recognize them? Do you know who they're quoted against or for? Talking about Jesus. 
These very verses that I just read to you, many will stumble over these. They'll fall and be broken, snared and captured. Excuse me, I'm sorry, this verse. Um, He will be a stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over and a trap and a snare for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. That was, those are prophecies that were directed at Jesus. They said Jesus became the stumbling block. How was Jesus a stumbling block to both Israel and Judah? Be- Jesus was a stumbling block because he didn't fit the mold. He didn't fit their expectation of what was going to happen. He didn't fit what they thought God was doing or going to do or whatever. And, and, and so they stumbled over that. And so here's the thing in crisis. Do not stumble over what's happening to you in the midst of that crisis. In the New Testament, John the baptizer is in crisis. Remember this? He's preaching. He preaches hard. He gets arrested. He's he's being held by Herod. And uh, you remember he sends some of his disciples to see Jesus. Do you remember what he asked? Are you the guy? Are you the one, or do we need to be looking for somebody else? I mean, what's happening to John? Well, he's stumbling. I mean, honestly, guys, he's stumbling. Why was John stumbling? Because, because it wasn't happening like he thought it was supposed to happen. Not just was Jesus evidently not just taking this massive lead that John thought. Maybe it was because John is in prison and nobody's rescuing him. But whatever, he's almost stumbling. Now listen to what Jesus sends back to him. The blind, John, listen. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Those with leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. The poor are told the good news. And and blessed is the one who doesn't stumble over me. When we're in crisis, everyone, it's, it's, it's way too easy to stumble. Why? Because God, who is more than able, isn't stepping in and doing anything. He's not, I mean, he's not removing my crisis. When sea billows, when sea billows like, no, how's it go? When sorrow like sea billows roll over my life, why isn't God stopping that? Why isn't there a bulwark to stop those sorrows from rolling in over my life? And, and people lose their faith over this. They, they lose their faith in God because God didn't come through like they thought God ought to come through or do what God ought to do. This is Remember what he said to Ahaz, if you stand firm in your faith, then you will not fall. If you stand firm in your faith, don't stumble in your faith or you're going to fall. Reminds me of what God said. I mean, remember Paul. Paul says, I go to God three times and I've got this crisis. We don't know what it is. Probably his eyesight. But he goes three times and three times God says the same thing to him. He says, um, what does he say to him? He said, my grace is sufficient for you. Don't stumble. Don't stumble. Paul said to Corinth in 1 Corinthians 16, stay awake, stand firm in your faith, be brave, be strong. Everything should be done in love. So everybody... I've been careful here not to say this. I've been careful not to say, don't stumble over what God is doing. Now, some folks say that evil doesn't have a specific purpose. I mean, that if it doesn't have a specific purpose, a special reason orchestrated by God, if my crisis isn't orchestrated by God for some specific reason, then then evil or crisis are pointless. And there would be nothing worse than pointless evil or pointless crisis. Now, I'm not one that believes that evil is pointless, but neither am I one that believes that every crisis that comes my way is orchestrated by God for a reason. I want to say that again. I want to be really clear. I don't believe that every crisis, I don't believe that every bad thing that happens, I don't believe every difficulty or sorrow in my life is orchestrated by God for a specific purpose. If I believe we live in a broken world, broken by sin, and when God gives autonomy to you and he gives autonomy to me, there's just no doubt that in my sinfulness, tribulation's going to result. Now we can ask the question, why did God create a world like that? Why did God create a world with the potential for sorrow and crisis and all those kind of bad things? And, you know, my only answer to that, I agree with the, I agree with the philosophers when they say this, that the only way for true love to exist is to have a world like the one that we have, where people have true ability to respond to God and to each other. 
But my point is this. My point is this, and, and, and this is probably where I'm confusing you all to death. My point is this. I have never found in my Bible where God promises to rescue me, meaning to remove me from every crisis or remove crisis from me. What I read in my Bible over and over and over again is that he says that in my crisis, his grace will be sufficient for me. In other words, I don't care what crisis you're in, his grace will be sufficient for you. And here's something else I, I think that God promises us in crisis, where I don't believe he promises that he's going to remove every crisis or that he's the cause behind every crisis. I believe he promises that I'll be with you in every crisis and I'll never leave you. I'm never going to desert you in the midst of that crisis. He promises to resurrect us one day into an eternal kingdom and be with us forever. And those are his promises. I just don't find where he promises that every crisis is going to turn out good. Now, can I say this? In this particular case, Judah's crisis will turn out good and God promises it. He says to them, listen, take it to the bank. Here's the sign. It's in retrospect, but here's the sign. They're not, uh, Rezin and uh, Pekah are not going to overtake you, okay? And neither is the king of Assyria going to overtake you. I promise. So in his crisis, he's promising them a good ending, but he doesn't always promise that for us. So don't stumble, folks. Don't stumble over what's happening to you. Don't stumble in your love for God. Don't stumble in your hope in him. Don't stumble in the fact that he cares for you. Don't stumble in the fact that he's with you always in the midst of that. Whatever. God hasn't abandoned Melissa. God is right there with Melissa. God is walking with Melissa. I mean, yeah. Do like Isaiah said. I'm going to wait on the Lord. I'm almost finished. I'm almost finished. Number six. Seek God's instruction in crisis. Look at verse 18. Here I am, the children of the Lord has given me. Uh, here I am with the children of the Lord has given me to be signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of army who dwells on Mount Zion. I think what Isaiah means, here I am with my two kids named a remnant will return and spoil, hurry up with the spoil and, pl and plunder. I, I'm, I'm here with those kids testifying to all that God's going to do. Verse 19. When they say to you, inquire of the medians and the spiritists who chirp and mutter, shouldn't the people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? Go to God's instruction and testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, they will, they will, there will be no dawn for them. Here's what's happening. People are going to Isaiah and say, hey, inquire of the dead people. Inquire of the spiritists. Inquire of the soothsayers. Inquire of all them and what we should do. And he's saying, what are you talking about? Inquire of the Lord. So if you're in the middle of your crisis, everyone, go to God. Find wisdom from God. See if there's anything in his word that relates to your crisis. Look to the Lord's word and understand, not to these mediums and other sources of, of it's kind of like we said the other day from Isaiah chapter 1, I think it was, where they're going to get their information on what's right and wrong from culture. Don't get it from culture. Don't get it from any kind of, any kind of, Medium, get it from the Lord. Go to him. Look to his instruction. Seek, seek his help. I can remember in my early vocational ministry, I was pastoring in a church, and right many people were upset with me. And it was a crisis for me. It was actually such a crisis that there were times I, I would cry. Oh, of course, of course, I cry all the time now. But I, I would cry even back then. And I cried over the stress of it all back then. And I can remember inquiring of the Lord. And I can remember the Lord clearly telling me this. He said, be gentle and be kind and love the people that weren't fond of you, love them, and don't manipulate, and don't seek to defend yourself. You know what? And I tried hard to live by, I tried hard to live by that instruction from the Lord. And in time, he lifted the crisis. In crisis, don't seek, don't seek advice from culture. Don't seek advice from medians. Not that any of you would. But seek the Lord for his instruction in your crisis. And finally, and seven's the perfect number. That's why I had to go to seven. And finally, in your crisis, look to God or all you're going to end up seeing is the distress. All you're going to end up seeing is your distress and darkness. Look to God, everyone, or all you're going to end up seeing 
is your distress and darkness. Verse 21. They will wander through the land dejected and hungry. And when they are famished, they'll become enraged. And looking upward, they'll curse their king and their God. And they will look toward the earth and see only distress, darkness, and gloom of affliction. And they will be driven into thick darkness. I'm not sure if this is directed at Israel, the north, or Judah, the south, probably both. But the point is the same. In your crisis, if you don't look to God, if you curse God, don't look to God, then then really all you're going to see is just this darkness and this distress of your crisis. That's all you're going to see. And you're going to despair, and and you're going to be dismayed by that thick darkness. So look to God. And I, I got to be honest with you, I'm sitting there this morning singing, and God tells me to tell you all this. I know it's mystical. Uh, this, is, this is the application of this point. How do I do that? How do I look to God and not to my crisis? I mean, we sang about it. Anybody remember? It was in that prayer song. It's in that prayer song. When, 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 when everything around me is crumbling and crisis is all around me, take it to the Lord in prayer. Go to the Lord. Here's how we look to God. We take it to the Lord and we pray. We look to him. We talk to him about our crisis. That's what you and I should do. So let's review. Let's review. Don't be afraid. Remember, God is the supreme sovereign. Hold on to God's sign. Fear God. No one else. Don't stumble over what's happening to you. Seek God's instruction and then look to God. God is the light of our being. He's the source of our hope. And he's the one who has promised this, that nothing, no crisis of tribulation, no crisis of distress, no crisis of persecution, no crisis of famine, no crisis of nakedness, no crisis of peril, no crisis of sword can separate us from him. Instead, Romans 8, verse 37, in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check out our website at baconscastle.com to get to know us and see what God is doing locally here in Surrey. Be blessed. Be blessed.